This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, Brooke Nindorf with you for The Country Hour for today and for the next couple of weeks. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. We'd love to hear from you today, 0467 922 What's on your wish list for this year? It can be anything. Maybe you're looking to expand. Maybe you're getting some more livestock in. Maybe try a new variety of what you're growing. Do you want a new invention to maybe deal with things like fruit fly or maybe some shearers that will magically appear? You can send me a text. I would love to know. Now, unfortunately, many and still in those flood-affected regions not able to celebrate the new year just yet. We're going to check in with the SES shortly for the latest. Plus, 2022 was the year that biosecurity really made headlines. So what was taken from that? One of the other things which I think has been really positive is um, we've been working well, of course, with industry. They've been working closely with us uh, on biosecurity issues. But because of what you mentioned, that sort of where it really hit the mainstream media a lot, I think there's a greater awareness from the general public that biosecurity is actually a shared responsibility. We'll have more from the Primary Industries Minister, Claire Scriven, on the year that was very shortly. But first today, to the flooding emergency and South Australia's State Emergency Service says work is progressing to fix a failing storm water drain causing minor flooding near homes in Manham. Flood water started to bubble up through the grass at Marianne Reserve last week and caused the SES to issue a temporary evacuation order for nearby properties. Also, we heard this morning Wall Flat, which is en route to Wakery. There was a levee that's given away that was protecting grazing country. To find out more, we're joined by Robert Charlton, Chief of Staff of the SES. Good uh, Good afternoon, Robert. Hello, Brooke. Now, just first to our wall flat near Wakery, what's happened there? So we have reports of a uh, levee failure at Wall Flat, um, which, as you mentioned, is starting to impact some partial areas. We don't have any concerns for any properties, uh, nor do we have any concerns for access roads, but it's just unfortunate that um, it's... Um, something that we're seeing across a number of areas now and likely to see more of um, as the days go by. What areas are of most concern at the moment with the flooding? So we're starting to see um, the waters recede um, in the sort of the riverland and the upper parts of the Murray. So um, we we believe the peak is around the Loxton area um, at the moment. But our, so our areas of concern are certainly anything past that. And we're particularly seeing quite a bit of activity around Manham, Murray Bridge and, and through that area. At Manham, that new levee was being constructed and, and the repairs to the, the stormwater drain at Marianne Reserve. How is that all going? So that's progressing uh, well. Um, we're likely to see that uh, finished within the next few days, uh, possibly even earlier. Um, and uh, that will allow us to actually, once once we've built that additional temporary levy um, in the Marianne Reserve area around the rowing club, we'll, we'll actually be able to um, undertake repairs of the pipe uh, to stop any more water from coming in. What's the latest on Lake Bonnie? Uh, people are advised to, to not swim there at the moment. 
People are advised to uh, take caution in that area. Um, we are undertaking pumping operations to try and aerate the water, um, but uh, SA Health are uh, testing that regularly and they do have some advice out around for people to be uh, aware of risks there. It's not, you know, to the point that, uh, you know, there's significant danger, but people just need to be aware that it may uh, impact some people with uh, skin irritations. But, but, yeah, definitely refer to SA Health for more information on that. Robert Charlton, Chief of Staff of the state's SES. We, we heard, uh, we just spoke about levies before, but we're hearing that people are walking on them when they don't need to be. How dangerous can that be and, and what does it mean for the integrity of, of certain levies? Look, it's, it's you know, it'd be fair to say that one person walking on a levy is not necessarily going to uh, cause that levy to fail, um, but we're really concerned that we are seeing failures happen quite quickly um, and sometimes without warning, um, and we don't want that to happen when somebody is on the levy. Uh, you know, we're all supportive of the fact that people want to observe what's happening with the floodwaters, but do it safely, do it at a distance, um, because uh, we do have crews um, pre-staged across uh, the River Murray to, that can rescue people, but we can't get there at a you know, in five minutes' notice. So we don't want people to be putting themselves in danger unnecessarily. We've heard from some people in, in Maroot who were telling us that people weren't able to come out there to help out or, or those from the SES. What support is the SES currently providing for people with houses that are being flooded? So obviously we're providing sandbags, as we have been for quite some time, to help people preemptively try and uh, minimise risk to their properties. We do have... Um, crews that are actively out there to say crews available for rescue. We do have crews available to support that. Um, look, I think it would be fair to say we can't always support every single property, particularly with the, the number of properties. We, we, we're talking in the thousands of properties that uh, that either have been impacted or at risk of being impacted, but we are doing the, the, the best we can. We do have to prioritise our resources. Definitely, and uh, those SES, um, most of them, or nearly all of them, are volunteers and, and helping out there. Robert Charlton, just, just moving away from the flooding, is the heatwave warning watch and act for the northeast partial district today. What does this essentially mean? So it's... it's um, you know, some would say that it's just hot weather um, and it's, it's that time of the year, but we're starting to see some of the sort of the, the early um, parts of summer and uh, so that's why we want people to be aware that, that the risk is not that it's necessarily hot during the day, but also that there isn't an opportunity to cool down overnight. So we, we want people to be aware of it and, and many of the locals are, are quite used to that, but maybe people might be travelling around school holidays and they need to be aware that there is a risk and just take uh, measures appropriately. We're not concerned that it is a, you know, severe or extreme, that it is an extreme heat wave, um, but we do want people to uh, take precautions, keep cool. You know, if you can avoid being out in the heat of the day, travel uh, in the cooler parts of the day, um, keep well hydrated, and certainly be aware of, of the young and elderly who might be more susceptible to the risk of heat. Definitely. Robert Charlton, thanks very much for your time to, uh, on the Country Hour today. Thank you, Brooke. That was Robert Charlton. He's the Chief of Staff for the State SES. And for SES assistance, you can call 132 500 if the matter is life-threatening. Call triple zero and stay listening to ABC Radio as well. And you can check the SES website for updates as well. That's ses.sa.gov.au. And for River Murray flood information, you can contact the River Murray hotline on 1800 you're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Now, from foot and mouth disease to lumpy skin disease, African swine fever to varroa mite. 2022 is the year biosecurity really made headlines in mainstream news as well as agricultural media. It was quite a lot to take on as the new primary industries minister in March when Labor won the state election. So Claire Scriven reflects on the big issues she's faced as minister in 2022. I really feel that 2022 has been the year of biosecurity, it seems. Uh, all of those that you mentioned, there was, of course, Japanese uh, encephalitis as well and the continuing fight against fruit flies. So it really has been huge for biosecurity. Uh, one of the things that I'm really pleased that I've been able to achieve is additional funding uh, to particularly look at uh, what we need in terms of uh, emergency animal disease outbreaks, uh, $6.8 million to increase our preparedness and response uh, resources. So that's for extra equipment, that's for mobile laboratories in regional areas, it's for extra vets and extra animal health staff. And I think it's uh, a really good acknowledgement of how important our agricultural industries are and how important biosecurity is. One of the other things which I think has been really positive is um, we've been working well, of course, with industry. They've been working closely with us uh, on biosecurity issues. But because of what you mentioned, that sort of where it really hit the mainstream media a lot, I think there's a greater awareness from the general public that biosecurity is actually a shared responsibility, you know, that we all need to be aware of what's happening. We need to make sure, you know, we don't go on farm uh, as visitors without taking all the precautions that we don't uh, you know, bring in from overseas any meat or dairy products through the post. I'm sure there's still a long way to go, but I think it's really encouraging that there is that increased acknowledgement, that increased awareness of what people need to do in the general public as well. What's been your biggest challenge this year? Other than biosecurity, <laughs> I think really biosecurity has been the biggest challenge. Well, everything really does seem to stem from biosecurity, doesn't it? Look, it, it has. Um, and yeah, so I guess that's got to be the number one challenge that I've had. Uh, of course, the other thing uh, which we know is you know, still playing out in the Riverland is the floods, and that's really difficult for uh, everyone in those communities. But again, I think the government has been working very well with industry, uh, as well as with local communities, councils, and so on. Uh, it, clearly, there are you know, occasionally things which will not be quite as smooth as we'd want. That's the nature of, um, of I guess, uh, the sorts of natural emergencies that we see through things like flooding. Uh, but I think it has been a real pulling together of people to make sure that you know, there's been as much preparedness as possible and then there'll be as, uh, a real positive response in terms of uh, yeah, mopping up and, and supporting people going forward. So that's been something that's, uh, I, I guess, also been top of mind, particularly you know, at the moment and through Christmas. Have you achieved everything you wanted to this year? Or is there anything still nagging at you? Uh, well, we've achieved a number of things. Um, the first piece of legislation that I introduced was for a cross-border commissioner, which is particularly relevant, of course, to uh, those communities on the borders, which many of which are agricultural communities. But also uh, changes to the Livestock Act, which again comes back to biosecurity, uh, but we needed to streamline the Livestock Act somewhat so that uh, we could be more agile in the event of an outbreak of one of the emergency animal diseases. I've also um, been working on the Biosecurity Act. Uh, that's something that was started under the previous government, but essentially it stalled after starting in 2019 and then having consultation in 2020. So um, I've been working very hard uh, with those industries that uh, potentially will be involved in that. Uh, and I look forward to being able to uh, release a consultation draft bill early in the new year so that instead of just people talking about what the goals are, which is important, of course, and the aims, but actually have a piece of legislation that they'll be able to give some feedback on. Uh, but of course, there's still a lot to go. We've been very fortunate with the 
how, yeah, with how we've gone in terms of harvest for grains and so on. We're looking at records again, which is which is wonderful. But of course, it has also been a late season, and that's created its own challenges, uh, including with you know obviously people wanting to cease being working to, uh, over Christmas. And uh, I know some of the producers I've been speaking to have found that a bit challenging. Uh, but it does still look like it's going to be uh, an absolute record crop, which is fantastic. Yeah, some big numbers coming off. What have you most enjoyed about twenty twenty two? That's a good question. Obviously, becoming a minister has been an absolute highlight, but then since becoming minister, probably the fact that I've got out to so many different regional communities. I think I'm up to around about 35 or 36 regional visits in the nine months I've been minister. Uh, And that's just really important to me that I'm out listening to people in their own space, in their own areas. I'm not expecting everyone to, you know, traipse into Adelaide to to have a meeting with me as minister. Uh, And that's been really enjoyable because you can read as many briefs as you like, but actually getting out, meeting face to face with people, seeing the situations that they're describing and, um, you know, the opportunities as well as the challenges. I just find that really, um, really enjoyable, I guess, and so useful as well. So looking forward to 2023, it's looking like there could be 4,000 hectares of agricultural land affected by the flooding in the River Murray. Um, That's clearly going to be a focus. Beyond that, what else is going to be your focus in 2023? I think a few things. Obviously, I've already mentioned the Biosecurity Act, and that's going to be an important part of 2023. Um, But also through this last nine months, there's been a lot of opportunities identified of where we can be Uh, better supporting the agricultural industries, better supporting regional communities. Looking at sometimes those things which are not necessarily huge things in themselves, but but are really important in terms of, you know, drawing people together or drawing businesses together to be able to, you know, achieve some really innovative changes. So I think a big part of the role of government is being able to sort of be the facilitator, if you like, the, the linker or the connector for some of those things, because we have so many innovative ideas, so many innovative people in our state and being able to uh, assist in some way in getting those ideas off the ground or getting them further commercialised, I think is really important. Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven speaking to Cassie Huff. To all now, and we often talk about highs and lows once the past year is done and now the new year is here, the split is perhaps more evident in the wool industry than anywhere else. It was a year that anyone trying to sell crossbred wool might prefer to forget, but right across the industry there's been a fair complement of challenges. Peter Somerville caught up with Fox and Lee's Karawa and District Regional Manager Jenny Turner to have a look at 2022 in wool. 2022 has been characterised by turmoil globally, And at home, Hanrahan would have been in his element. Producers have been battling pestilence, lost production that that has accompanied the extended extreme wet conditions. Um, This has upset the flow of wool into store, although that seems to be writing itself a bit now. On the global front, the challenges have been um, many. War in the Ukraine, rising energy costs, COVID in China, rising interest rates, um, foot and mouth outbreaks and the, the fear associated with that. So there's been a lot of juggling balls in the air, which has presented really high level challenges for businesses. To pick up on Hanrahan, um, have we all been ruined this year? <laughs> well, I think some certainly some um, elements of the um agricultural industry yeah, would be empathising with Hanrahan at the moment. From a wool perspective, we are at 
relatively low levels compared to pre-COVID, although the EMI finished at 1327. This time last year it was 1358. It peaked in June at 1474 and the lowest point was 1224. So we've had a 250 cent range for the year. The average was 1360. If we drill down onto a micron level, we've closed the 17 micron MPG is at the 70.6 decile. Now that means that that MPG has traded at or below that level for that percentage of the time since 2005. So that's you know above average. The 19 and a half indicator is at 74.1. But for crossbred producers, of course, it's been pretty dismal. We're, we're now at, at the 0.1% decile, and that has been trading at the zero decile for quite some time. Now, the EMI not far off at where it was this time last year, but there really was a, a bit of a last-minute run to the finish line, wasn't it, there? It, yeah, there certainly was. We we gained just over 100 cents in the last two weeks. Is that unusual? Well, in wool market terms, it's not that unusual, but these little flurries of activity um, has been a characteristic of the market this year. It's been relatively stable but just marked by these marked by these short bursts uh, and then it seems to come back a bit maybe to take that a bit further it might be hard to quantify but uh, the wool market's not one known for stability how volatile were things this year do you think it was a more or less volatile than usual year well that's a good question i think we were relatively low in volatility for the poor old crossbreed producers, things were very stable, although a little bit of volatility would have been welcomed, I think. But for a lot of the part of the year, there, there was quite a slim range in that EMI. Yes, we've had a 250 cent range over the year, but for the most part, I, I would suggest that 2022 has been quite, has been quite stable comparatively. And what about on the production side of things, those factors that have affected producers' ability to grow wool and get it off the sheep? There's the big wet, there was a shearer shortage, shipping issues. What held the industry back the most this year in your eyes? I think um, if you speak to producers, the biggest challenge on the wool production front would definitely be the shearer shortage. Coming into into the, the, the warmer months now with the wet weather, there's real risk of, of flies and worms and feet. So I think that we've seen in the sale yards that there's lower prices on sheep and lambs. And I think that represents, you know, a fair bit of concern from producers that they can look after those animals over the next few months because it will be tough. If we take a bit of a look forward, Jenny, now that we're into 2023, how do you think things will play out this year? Are we going to see more of the same issues pervading or will things change? Well, we have, it is always an unknown as to what's going to happen in terms of China and their recovery from COVID-19. Whilst their doors are back open for business, no doubt it will take some time to for everyone to get well. Plenty of modelling has been done to indicate that the, the COVID surge will create significant volumes of fatalities in China. Various reports we have read estimate 600,000 on the low side to over a million on the top side. So hopefully for the sake of individuals, 
you know, it's it's lower rather than higher. But this is also a very important driver in the in the wool market. So, you know, given that it may take time for China to recover, it still may well be stop and start for us. Wool broker Jenny Turner speaking with Peter Somerville. Brooke Nindorf with you today. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now. We're joined by Jenny Horvat. Good afternoon, Jenny. Good afternoon, Brooke. Now it's uh, it's quite a warm day today here in Port Lincoln, but uh, there's a heat wave in the northeast pastoral district. Well, how's it looking around the rest of the state? Yeah, look, it is a bit of a mixed bag depending where you, where you are. So we've had a bit of a trough move through. So across the south, we're generally looking at some a milder conditions through. There was a bit of a cloudy start as well with some local patch, fog patches around the southeast as well this morning. But that's all clearing up pretty well. We also saw some early morning thunderstorms as well this morning across um, parts of our eastern border district. So that does include sort of parts of the upper southeast district, the Murraylands, the Riverland as well as quite active across the northeast pastoral district. Um, this morning not too much going on about at the moment but that trough is still um, pushing up into the northeast so we can expect to see some thunderstorms redeveloping again across the, um, the pastoral districts. Having said that, we didn't see too much rainfall recorded with that activity in the last 24 hours up till 9am. We did see um, a couple of millimetres fall up around the northeast pastoral district and down at Kalami in the southeast a millimetre through there. So we're not expecting a lot of rainfall with that thunderstorm um, activity, but um, generally less than sort of five millimetres. But you could get the odd isolated one that could produce a little bit more. But generally they're more on the dry side and probably going to be confined to the north um to the northern parts of the pastoral districts as that trough continues to move through so still as you mentioned we do have that um heat wave warning out for parts of the northeast pastoral district still looking at very hot temperatures in the 40 across parts of the pastoral until that um that trough moves through and pushes those southerly um winds up either later today or for the remaining parts um tomorrow so taking the edge off some of those temperatures but still very hot today across the north and still even at first around the northeast on tuesday until that trough moves through so again we could still be seeing those um thundery showers was lingering across the far north and the northeast of the state on Tuesday. Further south, we are looking at those milder conditions. A little bit of cloud again around on the Tuesday. We could see a little bit of light shower activity around on our southern southern coasts on Tuesday. But we're really only very light and only a couple of spots. It shouldn't really be too much. On Wednesday, that trough's really moved out into Queensland, but still couldn't rule out some thundery showers in the very far northeast on the Wednesday there again and again in the south will probably be quite cloudy and again a little bit of light shower activity not out of the question near us um, southern and far western coasts on the on the Wednesday probably all that weather's pushed out to the NT by Thursday but we could still be seeing a bit of light shower activity around um, our southern coast on Thursday but as we head into Friday we'll start to see our winds shifting a bit more sort of easterly and northeasterly by the weekend so we are looking to start to dry up and um, see some return to some warmer warmer temperatures and then it's um, going to get a little bit interesting as we head into the the weekend especially for the northwest and the and the north so we've got that extra cyclone 
alley up around Kimberley in WA and it looks like it may start to get some movement by the weekend and we may see a bit of tropical moisture coming across our border but that's a bit of a watch this space because we always have to wait and see how those systems evolve but further south again remaining dry as we head into the weekend so mostly dry for um, southern parts of the state and a little bit of thundery activity around so up until the end of the week so end of Friday we're generally expecting less than five millimetres with those thunderstorms in the far north maybe some local falls of 10 millimetres couldn't be ruled out but generally we're not expecting very much with those storms at all and then for our southern and western coast with that cloud and a little bit of shower activity maybe a millimetre maybe a couple but we're really not expecting anything too significant rainfall wise and then um, as our winds shift a bit more we'll start to see some heat returning over in southern parts over the weekend again brook jenny thanks very much for your time this afternoon no worries, thank you. That was Jenny Horvat at the Weather Bureau. Let's have a look at the uh, western inlands for tomorrow. The upper western, mostly sunny with the chance of a thunderstorm. Winds northeast to southeastly, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour. Tending southeast to southwesterly, 25 to 35 k's per hour early in the morning. Overnight temperatures falling to the low to mid 20s, with daytime temperatures reaching 37 to 42. For the lower western, mostly sunny, a slight chance of a shower in the far east, near zero chance elsewhere, chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast. Winds south to southwesterly, 25 to 35 kilometres per hour, increasing to 25 to 40 k's in the morning. Overnight temperatures falling to between 16 and 22, and daytime temperatures reaching 32 to 37. Very shortly, we're going to head to Menindi and hear what's happening there with the flooding. You're listening to the Country Hour, Brooke Nindorf with you. Plenty more to come. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au/rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello, thanks for your company as we start the year 2023. Would love to hear from you. You can send me a text on 0467 922 What's on your wish list for the year? Maybe you're looking to head out to a regional area to visit. Maybe you want to get into a new job, maybe in the agricultural field. Let me know. Send me a text. Coming up, we're going to check in on how Menindi is going with the floods, but also what does it mean for South Australia? I guess the, the mantra, as all the hydrologists say, that every flood is different, and that is true. This one has been particularly different in the way the water levels have behaved at that local level. And we've been taking measurements throughout this event, so right back from when it was 40 gig a day at the border. We've been increasing the amount of measurements we've been taking, and all that will inform the new modelling. We'll have more on that shortly, but first let's head to the newsroom. We're joined by Wendy Glamachat. Good afternoon, Wendy. Good afternoon, Brooke. The head of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, has warned that 2023 is going to be tougher than last year as the US, Europe and China all experience weakening economic activity. The IMF predicts China's growth is likely to be below global growth for the first time in 40 years. In October, the IMF cut its outlook for global economic growth, reflecting the pressures from the fallout from the COVID lockdowns, the war in Ukraine, high inflation and rising interest rates. The federal government says the new negative test requirement imposed on travellers from China is a modest safeguard to avoid importing a new COVID variant. 
The fresh border controls will start on Thursday, with authorities saying the move is in response to a lack of detailed data on China's COVID surge. Australia's tourism sector says the government's decision to bring back such border controls is a bit of a blow to the sector. And South Australia's State Emergency Service says that peak water flows down the River Murray have now reached the town of Loxton. Around 200 gigalitres of water a day recently passed through Berry, but river levels are expected to remain high for months. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thanks very much, Wendy. That was Wendy Glamachak in the newsroom. Just on the flooding, we've had uh, SASES has advised that the Long Island and Swanport levees located either side of Swanport Bridge at Murray Bridge has breached. Water is flowing into the area behind the levee and may impact Bot Lane at Swanport. Whilst no homes are likely to be impacted, residents and visitors to the area should be aware of and comply with any road closures for their own safety. So stay tuned to your local ABC radio for any updates on that one. Now, an evacuation order was issued by the New South Wales SES for residents of the far west town of Menindee. They were telling them to leave by 10am Friday morning, with the Darling River expected to peak at about 10.7 metres in Menindee on Saturday. We're joined by Sarah McConnell from the ABC Broken Hill office, who's been in Menindee the last couple of days. Good afternoon, Sarah. Hello, Brooke. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Now, has the Darling reached its expected peak? Um, look, no, it was going to be peaking at 10.7, according to Water New South Wales, who have been watching it very closely. It's currently sitting at 10.3. They said it was going to peak on Saturday, uh, but then now they've moved that to Thursday. So they're monitoring um, this very closely because it is pushing water down the low-lying areas of Menindee, which you said about the evacuation order. So that was for those areas, and I'm sad to say that we have lost homes here in Menindee and about 15 residents have been moved. Um, some have chosen to stay, uh, but there is an emergency evacuation here in Menindee for those people who um, can't stay in their home, sadly. So you said um, 15 residents have been evacuated? Yeah, they have. So they're um, currently uh, being moved to Broken Hill or in Menindee. So there's a Two motels here, they've put people in there or in with families. One Indigenous elder has been moved into Broken Hill and I'm sad to say that he didn't actually know his house had gone under until his niece had gone to check in on him and, yeah, they couldn't save it. Yeah, that's that's sad to hear. Has they been, been able to save stuff from their homes? Uh, uh, a little bit from that one. Um, from the other home, yes, they have. Some of the other houses that are affected, it's called Irrigation Road, and that's where the Darling River stretches around because going down river. They um, knew last Thursday that they may not um, be able to save that area. So, yes, they've pushed a lot of things in. Friends and family from around Broken Hill have come up. They've had truckloads of stuff going on um, out back to Broken Hill or up um, into higher parts of sheds. You've had... Uh, RFS, local station owners, the SES, just moving things everywhere to help everybody. This whole community book has come together. It's an amazing to see. I must say, though, it's been high 40s. Yesterday it was close to 42-ish. Um, a levy breached and the RFS, I've never seen them move so quick in all their life to help this family get this levy um, before it went into their home. Yeah, aren't they amazing, these people that are helping oh, out, uh, not only in Menindee, but across, uh, right across the country. What's the feeling like in, in the town, Sarah? 50-50. So you've got those who are frustrated. They're saying there wasn't enough communication between um, Water New South Wales, the SES, the RFS. 
But then you've got the other part of the community to say, thank you. Just thank you for being here. Thank you for being on the ground. Yes, you were door knocking everyone. But then it, the thing is, they ha- these people who are frustrated, there was a meeting last Thursday. They were told that the evacuation order was being put in place. They had to get out by the next day at 10 o'clock the Friday. Then the gate to the main weir here in Menindee were going to be open, so that was for three days. They changed that, and within three hours, those gates were opened. Um, now, those gates are still open, and they're pushing 72 gigalitres per day out those gates down the Darling River. Um, so, as I said, yes, yeah, some people are frustrated, but others... Look, honestly, you can understand where they're coming from. This is their homes, and this is their livelihood. Sarah McConnell, you've been sharing some some pretty incredible photos on social media. Can you explain what the area is like, or how would you describe what you're seeing? Wet. So, <laughs> um, where we were yesterday, we were walking around. Um, there was a head, a mob of sheep that was just sitting there next to a dam, having a feed overnight. Um, a levee breached, so that area is just flooded now. Um, those head, those hundred head of um, sheep, and there's a mixture of goats in there as well. Uh, the SDS and the RFS and the life-saving group. There's a life-saving group out here with their boats, so they had to swim those sheep out this morning. Uh, then, but then, look, if you turn around, let's so say go to your left, you look to your left, and there's no water at all. So it just depends on what area of Menindee you're look, you, you are in. So if you're at the Darling and the low level, yeah, there's water as far as the eye can see. You turn back and it's just uh, a crop with some grapes and they've got the irrigation going. Amazing. Well, Sarah McConnell, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. You stay safe and uh, people can see more of these photos uh, on the uh, ABC Broken Hill Facebook page, I believe. Yes, they can. Lots of videos up there. Fantastic. Sarah, thanks for your time. Thanks. Bye. That was Sarah McConnell from the ABC Broken Hill office letting us know what is happening there in Menindee. So a state government hydrologist here in South Australia says he doesn't expect extra flows in the Darling River to create another peak here for South Australia. It comes as the Menindee residents work to reinforce levees against the Swollen River. Ben Bruce is the Executive Director of Water and River Murray at the Department for Environment and Water and he told Matt Stevens that floodwaters are receding rapidly in the Riverland. Yeah, we're hopeful, Matt, that it'll recede quite quickly now. So the Murray has a history of its major floods of receding quite quickly um, recently often, and that trend seems to be happening at the moment. We've seen really quite rapid recession upstream. So up at Euston, which is just below where the Murrumbidgee joins, we've seen flows drop by over 60 gigalitres a day since it peaked on the 9th of December. Um, so if we see that trend continue, we're really looking for a, quite a rapid recession. Right. Okay. So, uh, but what sort of time do we have a time frame here we could we can work to? I mean, at least forecast anyway. Yeah. So we're looking, you know, below the 150 by mid January. This will all vary, of course, depending on a whole lot of things that happen as water moves through the catchment. But certainly by mid January, we think below 150 and possibly well below, and then back to you know. 60 gigalitres a day early in February, which is where a lot of the um, buildings and things are out of water by then. And then, you know, returning back to the, the main channels shortly after, which is about 40 gigs a day. Right. Um, the thing that will just affect that a little bit is, as people are aware, there's some flows coming down the Darling. At, at this stage, it's not major for a South Australian perspective, though it has been major upstream because um, a lot of water disappears into the catchment um, in that area. 
Um, but that just might flatten. We're not not expecting to see another peak or anything. It just might flatten the rate of recession a little bit just at the end there. Right, got it. Because I have had a, a few questions about that, and it wasn't something that I knew in depth myself. Because of course we're hearing uh, about Menindee Lakes and and flooding that's going on in Menindee itself. Um, so is that will that have any effect further for, for us? It shouldn't have a major effect, Matt. Um, so at the moment, Menindee, they're increasing releases by about 10 gigalitres a day from what they have been doing already. Um, and that water obviously attenuates as it comes down the river towards us anyway. So as I said, sort of should be minor impact unless something else happens in the catchment that we're not aware of up there. But, but yeah, at the moment, it should be pretty minor impact by the time it comes here. As I said, it will just slow the rate of recession rather than you know, push it back up again. So is there anything upstream at the moment that we, we need to know about or need to keep an eye on that could affect us into the future, maybe even further afield than, you know, the next couple of months? Um, just at the moment, things are drying out really well. And speaking with the MDBA, um, yeah, they, they've been quite impressed with how quickly things have receded. Um, so there's not a lot of water in the system at the moment in terms of new water. Obviously, there's a lot of water in the system overall, but... Um, no, there's nothing that we're concerned about at the moment looking, you know, that six weeks, eight weeks out. Um, of course, you know, if there's a massive cyclones or major weather events, um, then that can change things, of course. But we're not expecting that at the moment. Right. Uh, I know I have been watching the weather patterns, as have a lot of other people, and right up the north of Australia is, is quite wet at the moment. So I suppose that, that, that depending on where that goes and where it falls is, is going to depend on what happens further downstream for us. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the latest advice we have is that system will um, will miss us, um, will miss the, the basin, which is a good thing. But yeah, we've just got to stay alert and uh, keep an eye on it. Um, there's also been a few questions about the variability of river heights with what we've seen come through. Is there any sort of uh, rationale for that or any reasons why one place might seem a little higher than others or even not even close to what the forecast was was expected to be? Yeah, the, the, the water levels have been really fascinating um, as we've we come down um, through this event. Um, really, it's down to what's happened in the catchment over the last 50 years or so since we've last had a major flood. And so we've seen quite strong local influences. So, you know, as people would be aware, you know, Renmark, um, the water levels were much higher relative to the flow that was coming through. So the flow was very accurate in terms of the forecast. Um, water levels are raised at Renmark, obviously coming back now. You know, at Berry, we've certainly seen water levels raised, but not to anywhere near the same extent as um, in Renmark. You know, other areas we've seen raised again too. So it really does come down to what's happened in the catchment. And, and that's things like roads, um, buildings, levees that have been constructed um, in that time. Thickening of vegetation. Vegetation can have a really strong impact on a floodplain too. And obviously, in the last 50 years, there's been a lot more vegetation in our floodplain. So... It's a combination of all those factors, and that's the majority of the reason why. So is this a bit of a, a learning experience as well in some ways? Because, I mean, obviously from the last few floods we've had, there's been changes, as we say, in infrastructure and what's around uh, the river system, but also in the way heights and flows are measured. So is this a, a, a learning curve for, for you as well? Yes, certainly, Matt. Um, I guess the, the mantra of all the hydrologists say that every flood is different, and that is true. This one has been particularly different in the way the water levels have behaved at that local level. And we've been taking measurements throughout this event, so right back from when it was 40 gig a day at the border, we've been increasing the amount of measurements we've been taking, and all that will inform the new modelling that we can do. But it's a, yeah, it's just 
been so long since any flows have been here, it, it really gives us a chance to, I guess, get, collect a whole lot of new data to inform um, mm. our modelling. Uh, knowing what we know now about, you know, the flow at the border and, you know, the fact that the, the, the river channel becomes six kilometres wide instead of being how wide it normally is, is there any thought to uh, changing the way that we measure flow at, at the border and at locks going through the system? Oh, not really. It depends what you're using flow for. So where flow is really useful is looking upstream and predicting the broad magnitude of events you're going to get. Um, it's, when you say to someone that uh, the water levels are 52.5 metres at Euston, that doesn't mean a lot to people. Whereas if you say it's 150 gig a day flow, it gives some relative idea of what's coming and, and same for the recession. Once we get to the border, the, the water levels, of course, are much more useful in terms of how we manage things. Department for Environment and Water's Bren Bruce speaking with Matt Stevens. Brooke Neindorf with you. It's coming up to a quarter to one. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, as the flood peak travels further downstream, communities are working together to protect farms from the rising River Murray. The state government estimates about 4,000 hectares of agricultural land could be inundated over the next few weeks. River Glen dairy farmer Ian Mueller told Ethan Ricks about why he's fighting so hard to save his farm. Well, this River Glen levy bank is a private levy and we got some graphs to see... I think by, via satellite, to see what the height of the levee was the whole way along. And the best parts of it was about 2.5. And as a community on the River Glen Swamp, we decided that it would be good to get the whole levee up to 2.5. To do that, fortunately, um, one landholder started lifting his levee bank, which was very, very low, and water would be pouring over there now if he didn't do it back in June, July. And with what the other landholders and myself and have been doing, our earth mover has now said we're probably up to 30,000, 35,000 tonne of clay we put on this levee bank and we're still carting. Hopefully he'll finish early this next week so it could get to that 35,000, 40,000 tonne of clay. If you work out 30,000 tonne with a 12 tonne load on a tip truck, that's about 2,500 tip truck loads that have been going on here. And at one stage I think we had four or five tippers running there was about four excavators and even a road grader down here to get it up to our level, to level it out and just to keep the trucks running. And can you kind of tell me with the sandbags today what you guys were doing? OK, because the river's not waiting for us to complete this project, it's just coming, um, and with a lot of fresh material on the levee bank, we've uh, got sandbags that we can put in areas where if we think we were to put trucks on the levee, we would probably crack the levee and do damage to it, that we can sandbag that. And because a lot of the levee that we've put here um, is very fresh, a strong south wind can probably pull that river up uh, a foot or so within even half a day. But if we've got sandbags on hand and we're going to scatter them in different areas, this levee's about four to five kilometres long. 
if we scatter them in different points, we're going to be able to very quickly go and get some sandbags and put in an emergency place for it. As well as some areas where the levee is a bit lower and when the river goes down, we'll do put more clay on those areas. But for now, we believe that this is our, our best option to have that and to have it just there in, for an extreme emergency. I guess, how worried are you about the water actually breaching or getting on the other side of the levee? Well, this is our livelihood. If water comes on the other side of the levee, and now I will probably explain to you one more thing. In 1956, when it last came over, I think I was about three or four months old when that happened. And people back then said that your floodplain would be out of action for about 12 months before you can grow any uh, pasture on it. Because first of all, you have to wait for the river to go below the levee bank in height. Then you have to repair the levee. Then you have to pump the water off the floodplain. Then you have to repasture it. And then hopefully you can put cows on it. But this year, I think we're going to have a high river for a, a quite a few months. The Hume, the Dartmouth and the Medindi Lakes, I think, are almost above 100% capacity. And we still haven't seen any snow water. And I have been told that there's going to be a lot more water running into Medindi Lakes in the very near future. So that's... So any floodplains that have gone could be out of action for longer because of the amount of water that still has to pass through before they can go and even repair that levee. So if we can hold out, that's going to help our farming enterprise a huge amount to continually graze here and uh, keep milking our cows the way that we have been doing it for years and years now. So that's why we're giving it our best shot. And can you kind of said before how much land is kind of at stake if it does get over? Can you kind of reiterate that again? This River Glen floodplain is about 500 acres and we probably own about 240 acres of that. So it's, it ha will have a huge impact. Normally this time of the year we would have corn growing on our floodplain in certain strips, which we would harvest in March for silage. Um, but we opted not to do that because growing corn is quite a costly exercise. First of all, buying the seed, having it planted and the irrigation. So um, we're probably going to be losing a huge amount of tonnage from not having that corn this year. But we've, had, we've still got a lot of hay on hand and we've got some other silage on hand as well. So that's what impact it will have. But in probably early March, we can sow a lot of this floodplain if it doesn't fill up to winter active ryegrass and, and uh, clovers. And then a few months after that, we could have really, really good early winter feed here to put that through the cows and produce as much milk as we can. And you are kind of saying before, what, what do you reckon your chances are of being able to shore it up? Um, well, here today, we've probably got close to a metre, probably might be three quarter of a metre to go. But once again, your levee is only as strong as the weakest part of it. So you only need one area to blow through or to go over the top or to have high tides and strong southerly winds, and that could bring it up. But there have been some levees that have breached already or gone over the top, and I know there's some others that are very, very close. I'm pretty proud of what we've been able to do here with this one, but nature is a very, very powerful force, and it's more powerful than what our community here at River Glen is. And um, yeah, if we get the wrong conditions, nothing will hold it back. And if we were to have a 1956 flood, well, I think where I'd be standing, I'd be water could be above my head. So like 56 was the biggest one of that's been recorded, and that. So I think we're going to be reasonably 
confident we don't, we're not going to have a 56, but I think 31 was the next biggest one. And yeah, I'm not quite sure of what their heights were, but all I'll say is we're in with a fighting chance and we don't want to have any regrets in months to come. If only we would have done this, we could have saved it. We're just throwing everything that we can at it. Um, a huge amount of financial uh, cost has been put into this. And yeah, if we can hold it out, it's going to be to our advantage. And just lastly, just before what we saw, the communities all come together. How, how great is that that you guys are all working Oh, look, that's just been absolutely wonderful. And I'm ever, ever so grateful for all of anyone here with, at River Glen that um, is helping. And when we did sandbags about two weeks ago, we had a solicitor from Murray Bridge who offered to help. We had some other people that came out and offered. It's not just the River Glen community. And we haven't advertised it too much at all. But, um, yeah, it's just been overwhelming of the united support that we've got to do the very, very best that we can. And um, if that's not good enough, well, that's the way it is. But, yeah, if we can give it our very best, um, we can't do anything more than that. Definitely. And uh, how great are communities in the time of emergencies? That was River Glen dairy farmer Ian Mueller. He was speaking with Ethan Ricks. And you can read more about uh, Ian's story and uh, others in the River Glen area online at abc.net.au. Just search for uh, for River Murray and floods and, and River Glen and you'll be able to find that uh, that story there. Just moving away from the floods now, and you might have heard about people getting sick in Western Australia the last couple of days from eating Cukes baby cucumbers that were produced here in South Australia. Now, we tried to get an interview on this. We haven't heard back from the company, but we got a statement from SA Health, which read the Department for Health and Wellbeing's Food Safety and Regulation Branch is assisting investigations into the potential presence of Salmonella tifamurium in Cukes baby cucumbers produced by South Australian business Perfection Fresh following an outbreak of STM cases in Western Australia. There's been no confirmation of the presence of STM in this product in South Australia and all product and environmental samples collected by the business during the investigation have not detected STM. SA Health is, excuse me, SA Health is working with Perfection Fresh to establish the root cause of the potential contamination, including the possibility of it occurring during transportation to WA. Now, SA Health has collected several samples of current product from retail stores for testing, with test results expected to be available later this week, and suspected batches identified in the WA outbreak should no longer be available in the marketplace, and the current product in the marketplace has not been implicated in the WA outbreak as well and is safe to consume. Now, to date, there have been no cases of salmonella notified to SA Health's Communicable Disease Control Branch, known to be linked to this product. So we'll keep you up to date on this investigation as more information comes to hand. And uh, you can find out more information as well by heading to the uh, SA Health website and uh, searching for that there. Brooke Nindorf with you. And there's uh, plenty more to come, but it's uh, currently five minutes to one. Get ready to be intrigued in 2023. David Wenham meets more iconic Australians in ABC of... Is that you, Art? That looks like my little plump face. Here's a complicated ghost story in new comedy, Limbo. I'm just trying to buy some unicorn undies. Plus, back in time for the corner shop... Welcome to our store. ...and so much more. Yeah. Strap yourselves in. Looking forward to 2023 on ABC TV and ABC iView. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill.
and uh, plenty of great content coming up on the ABC for 2023. We'd love to hear from you. What's on your wish list for the year? You can send me a text on 0467 922 Maybe you want to head somewhere uh, in a regional area and go and check out what there is to offer around South Australia, but we'd love to hear from you. Now, bilateral trade business with India is currently worth around $25 billion, but with the recent free trade agreement coming into place, the Australian-India Business Council thinks that could grow, especially for agricultural products. Tariffs on Australian wine are reducing, which could see more interest from India's middle class. Council Chair Jody McKay was in India to mark the FTA and spoke with ABC News Radio's Glenn Bartholomew. This is about raising the profile as a place for India in terms of bilateral trade and business. Let's look at some of those sectors that stand to benefit. Uh, there's an immediate removal of a 30% tariff on lamb and mutton. And I see tariffs on our wine slipping from 150% to around 70% this week and then eventually down to about 25% in the next nine years. Is there much of an appetite there for our wine? Well, obviously, we've got some states that, um, you know, like uh, Gujarat, where wine, you know, there's no alcohol at all. But yes, I think that there's a growing recognition and a more, there's a growing middle class here and uh, certainly a growing younger generation that I think of interest in, in, in our wine. But I think it's more generally a product from Australia. You know, we're very, very well regarded in terms of our agricultural products. But you mentioned, um, you know, some of those sectors that are going to benefit. But I also think it's important to look at what India said was a no-go. So you've got um, you've got um, uh, almonds, for instance, that are that are we're going to see a tariff reduced by about 50%, and then uh, other nuts will be progressively over a seven-year period. So a lot of this is elimination up front or a reduction over seven to ten years but then they've said no to chickpeas to pistachios to walnuts mm. so there's um you know areas of absolute no-go for uh for india in this free trade agreement but as a you know as we started off it, it is significant that they have wanted to engage in this pro- process in such a meaningful way and really if you look at this it was it was sort of the beginning of the year when um, Prime Minister Modi and Prime Minister Morrison at that point said, well, we want to get this done. And Tony Abbott, to his credit, as the former Prime Minister and envoy, played a huge role in this. It was his relationship really with Modi that saw this get to this point. And then, of course, we've seen Prime Minister Albanese in that first week where he uh, became Prime Minister um, prioritise the quad and meeting Prime Minister Modi. So the friendship, you know, we've always been friends. Australia was the first country to acknowledge India's independence. But right now, I think a good way of looking at it is that we're best friends. Chair of the Australian India Business Council, Jody McKay, speaking with ABC News Radio's Glenn Bartholomew. You can see more about that uh, free trade agreement with India online at abc.net.au slash rural. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks very much for your company. I just wanted to remind you about some of the sandbag locations that are open seven days a week at the following locations. They're at the Blanchetown Sports Club, the Bow Hill Community Centre, the Glossop High School, the Murray Bridge Showgrounds, the Manham Football Club, a Paringa, there's uh, just the car park on the corner of Pauline Street and Hughes Avenue. Um, there's also emergency relief centres at the Manham Football Club and the Berry Senior Citizens Club. For SES assistance, phone 132 500. 
Um, but for more matters that are life-threatening, call triple zero and stay listening to your ABC radio. And you can check the SES website at ses.sa.gov.au. And for assistance, call the Relief Information Hotline on 1800 302 787. And for River Murray flood information, you can contact the River Murray Hotline on 1800 362 361. It's news time. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.